I'm David Clayton, and this is the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. I'm with my friend Charlie Deist, who is not only the technician, he also keeps me on track with occasional questions and timely summarizations. This is episode 13, Private Property and the Common Good. This is a talk on uh, the philosophy of St. Thomas Aquinas and in relation to Catholic social teaching that was given by Father Brad Elliott, a Dominican priest, who was invited along with a, a small group of us to the convent here in El Cerrito. And he spoke to us. And so you'll hear him opening up the talk and then Um, As we move forward, occasionally I'll come in with questions just to focus on certain themes that I was hoping to cover in the course of it. A potential conflict lurks at the root of Catholic social doctrine. On the one hand, the popes have continually affirmed man's natural right to private property, even going so far as to label the right sacred and inviolable. The right to possess private property, they claim, is derived from nature, not from man and private ownership is in accordance with the law of nature, and that the natural right, both of owning goods privately and of passing them on by inheritance, ought always to remain intact and inviolate. Those are quotes from Pius XI. Yet on the other hand, the church also insists that the goods of the earth are ordered not to an individual alone, but to a universal destination, that the gifts of creation were given for the sustenance, enjoyment, and flourishing of all and that they may in no way be hoarded so as to extend their benefits to only a few. The universal destination of goods is rooted in the church's more fundamental belief in the primacy of the common good over individual goods, and that the common good possesses a character of an end to which individual goods must always be ordered so as to attain their full meaning. This seeming conflict is not hard to miss, since the church appears to be praising both the common and the private at once. If it is true that the common good possesses such primacy, and if it is also true that the material goods of the earth are ordered towards a universal destination, how can the church insist in such unwavering terms on an individual's right to private ownership? This clash of apparent opposites has tempted many to interpret Catholic teaching regarding property and the universal destination of goods as an instance of self-correcting contraries where the church, in her ever-balanced approach, upholds the goodness of both and forges a virtuous via media between two extremes. In this view, although both principles espouse a true good, each good neutralizes the dangers inherent in the other's excesses. A system of checks and balances emerges so close to the Anglo-American heart, where a right to private property errs on the political right the universal destination of goods leaps in with a left-leaning and altruistic correction. Where the universal destination of goods errs on the political left, the right to private property enters from stage right, blowing the trumpet of individual liberty. As a result, this view seems, sees in the correction between two extremes, a buoyancy upon which the political life of flourishing society may ebb and flow, so as to sail clear of two rival errors. There are two problems with this interpretation of church teaching. First, it sees in the right to private property and the universal destination of goods, not a positive and unified vision of the human good, but rather a series of reactions to the excesses of a given. Rather than a timeless expression of Christian truth transposed into the social sphere, it sees church teaching instead as a defensive and time-bound reaction to the defects of a changing world, a reaction that with time will also change along with that world. Therefore, some may claim that the church's dogged insistence on both the right to private property and the universal destination of goods is disjunctive, colored by the stern papal rhetoric of its time and contains no unified theological insight to be taken seriously. The second problem with this view is both more pernicious and more hidden. Although it claims to see both private property and the universal destination of goods as true goods, in truth, it does not see them as goods at all, but rather as But how might this be? If the right to private property must be held in check by its opposite, 
then at its deepest metaphysical level, it is less a true good to be desired and more like a caged monster to be feared. That is, a wild, untamed force that may be good in its effects only if its energy is tamed and domesticated. In the same way, the universal destination of goods might be a good in its effects if it redistributes reservoirs of material goods to the many in need, but not good in itself as a metaphysical expression of the deepest meaning of the gifts of creation. It is the goal of this essay to reveal the error of this interpretation. Although the equal promotion of the right to private property and the universal destination of goods might appear like a contradiction, it is only on the most superficial level that the illusion of a clash appears at all credible. As we examine the two principles on a deeper level, as we reach behind the veil and see both from the inside out, we will find that an irrefutable logic connects the two, so much so that whenever civil society forgets the dignity of one, it equally forgets the dignity of the other. The right to private property and the universal destination of goods do not oppose one another, but are instead both rooted in a unified vision of the gifts of creation and man's relation to them. Far from one correcting the evils of the other, or the other balancing the excesses of the other's effects, both principles, if rightly understood, contain an inner logic that not only presupposes the other, but even more demands the other as its necessary corollary. That's what I'm doing. And basically, I begin by asking the question, what is property? What is property? Would we know it when we see it? What makes something property and something else not property? If you have two, I use this example repeatedly throughout the whole work. If you have two adjacent fields that are exactly alike in every way, and you knew that one of them was property and another one was not, you would have no way of telling which one was property and which one wasn't. Property is not a thing. Property is not a substance. So in Aristotle's 10 categories, it's not, uh, it's not in the category of a substance or a thing existing in itself. You can't weigh it. There's no color to property. You wouldn't see it on the street walking by. But given time, the two fields would be different. The one that is someone's property would slowly change or look different than the one which was not. The field which was not someone's property would slowly deteriorate and, and just fall, fall into entropy and, and blend into its surroundings. The one that is property would continually be distinct. I say that property is not a thing. Property is, properly speaking, a relation. Understood in Aristotle's Ten Categories, it's a relation. And it's a relation that can only be had to a human person. So property is a relation to a human person. That unique relation that is only based upon reason. Animals don't have property, properly speaking. Animals can have a certain dominion over creation. They can have a certain sovereignty over creation, which is kind of enforced by their will. But an animal cannot, properly speaking, have a property relation. Only a human being can have a property relation because a property relation also demands the recognition of law. And a property relation establishes a relation between two property owners that's based upon law, as opposed to other relationships that the human person can have with creation, like one of sovereignty. A sovereignty relation with the earth is simply based upon willpower. The sovereign has a right to put his flag in the ground and establish the fact that a certain plot of land is his. That sovereignty is defended by the power of his will. His will rules the law of that land. But with property, it's different. The property owner does not plant a flag in the ground. The property owner is himself under a larger blanket of law that doesn't isolate his property from other people's property, but a larger blanket of law that connects his property with other property. So property fundamentally is a human relation that establishes connections between human beings and allows the goods of the earth to be elevated by a relation with the human intellect and participate in reason in a way that they otherwise could. And this is also why private property serves the universal destination of goods. Because in this whole second chapter, talking about what is the universal destination of goods. Now, the church is continually, John Paul II, 
the compendium on the uh, for the compendium for the social teaching of the Catholic Church came out in ninety one. Repeatedly talks about the universal destination of goods. But what is the universal destination of goods? People assume that this is redistribution of goods, that this is somehow a material dividing up of the world's resources to be handed out. But this is a contradiction in terms of fundamentally misunderstands the very nature of the common good itself. The common good is not something that can be divided up among many. The common good is a unified single whole that is itself loved by many at once. The universal destination of goods does not speak about a material division of goods as much as it speaks about the teleological nature of the gifts of creation. The gifts of creation are ordered to extend their goods to many, extend their goods. Now, one of the fundamental principles that allows this to happen is the difference that, uh, is a distinction that's all over St. Thomas, the distinction between dominium or uh, dominion and usus, dominion and use. Distinction all over St. Thomas. This, is, this distinction between dominion and use uh, for St. Thomas is used to define the nature of theft. It's used to define the nature of usury. It's used to define the nature of um, almsgiving. Is the, is the distinction between human dominion and human use, which is the use of those products. Even St. Thomas himself says that human dominion which is something given to Adam in the Garden of Eden. It's just fundamentally one of the things that makes us human is that we can enter into a dominion relationship with creation. Always serves as a means to an end, common use. So St. Thomas distinguishes use and dominion. He sees use as an end and dominion as a means. Property, properly speaking, the property relationship that the human person can enjoy with the goods of the earth is always a combination of dominion and use. It's a particular combination of dominion and use which, allow, which, which enables human dominion, human rational dominion, to elevate human use. So that human use is not mere animal, but the human, human use of creation is a participation in, in the goods of creation are able to, through participation in human reason, extend their benefits to many people rather than the universal destination of goods signifying a mere numerical redistribution or dividing of material resources. The universal destination of goods means that a single, the, the, a single gift of creation, a single material resource in creation, can, through a participation in reason, actually have its benefits amplified. So a single gift of creation or a good of creation can be used or be enjoyed, not simply by many at once, in many different ways. And St. Thomas says in multiple different parts of his, the, the whole second part, talks about different ways in which dominion and use actually accomplish, accomplish this. So now, to do this whole project, if that makes any sense, what I'm talking about, uh, it takes a little bit of uh, taking a lot of the parts out of something that's something like St. Thomas, a lot of the parts out of St. Thomas, and putting them seeing what he says about dominion and use. And his understanding of dominion and use and property and, and ownership, which he regularly talks about ownership uh, in the whole second part of the Summa, taking what he says about ownership in relation to the moral life, kind of distilling these things out and, and seeing how we can kind of connect these dots to apply them to our contemporary notion and seeing how private property serves. Them. That's my attempt to summarize. But also, in order to do this, I'm also I'm incorporating a lot of the Austrian school of, of economics. I'm incorporating a lot of Friedrich Hayek, uh, who I love, uh, a, lot of the, a lot of contemporary thinkers as well. Could you give us a sense, maybe, of how? So, just that, that we can. Well, I personally love the Austrians. You had a fantastic article that you sent out to everybody about the labor theory of value. Uh, labor theory of value. I thought it was fantastic. Did anybody have a chance to read that about the labor theory of value? Um, I, I think that article about the labor theory of value. We talked a little bit about this last month when we were we were hanging out about the errors of a labor theory of value. Um, that article talked about the Austrian 
interpretation of this as kind of a Copernican revolution in economics. I like that understanding in economics. You know, everybody knows the Copernican revolution is when people... So tell us what the labor theory well, of value Well, that value, is. economic value come, is, is, comes from labor, is derived from labor, and is, is, uh, is derived from labor, and uh, that, that labor, human labor is the source of economic value. So in other words, a fair price under that theory is derived from how much work somebody put into creating. And there's a certain exactly. So a chair, a chair, for example. Now, okay. Now we, this we can go deep on this because this actually also gets into medieval theologians as well. The the roots of this were in medieval theologians. Uh, the, the root of the medieval theologians understanding the error of this. But a chair, I, I create a chair, and it takes me, let's say, a hundred hundred labor hours to create a chair. So because I, I created the, that chair using a hundred labor hours. The chair's price is now equivalent to 100 labor hours. So the price of that chair is equivalent to the labor that goes into making the chair. The value of that chair is equivalent to the labor that goes into it, not um, what somebody is is willing to pay for, or not what it what its value, not what the value of that chair is to to another person. Um, that's the basically speak the labor uh, theory. And so as a result of this. Mm -hmm. You get people who feel they're not paid enough because I—it's not fair. The perception of um, well, there's and there's there's a certain intuitive truth to the labor theory of value. There's a certain intuitive truth to it to think that that the value of a product is actually given to that product based upon the labor put into it. Um, there's an intuitive truth, just like there's an intuitive truth to the Earth being at the center. There's an intuitive truth to it. Um, uh, and so, what what was Hayek's? What was the Austrian alternative? Well, the Austrian school's alternative, and I and I don't know enough about it to really. Uh, the Austrian school's alternative is that that value, value is actually not not come, labor has value. Labor has value, but economic value doesn't come from labor. Economic value comes from the value that the the value that a certain product is able, or the gifts or the benefits that a certain product or a certain thing is able to give to. Which can depend on... Which depends on a lot of things. Yeah. yeah, it depends on depends on a lot of different things. Um, the first people to ask this question were actually the medieval Franciscans, who were the inventors of capitalism, actually. The medieval Franciscans invented the because they were the first to ask... Um, they were the first to ask the question, the medieval Franciscans were the first to ask that if... If I put $100 of labor into making a chair, is it, is it moral for me to sell it for over $100 if somebody's willing to pay over $100? And they concluded yes. They actually concluded yes because they realized, they started to realize even back then that the labor theory of value actually didn't work. Uh, the medieval Franciscans invented the notion of fiat currency. It came from their nominalism, actually. Now, metaphysically, nominalism is a bunk system. But when it comes to economics, they're not, their nominalism actually helped them because it helped them realize that a dollar bill is not a thing. A dollar bill isn't a, a, like a, a dollar bill itself doesn't actually represent anything. It's value, it's economic value, but that economic value comes from the human mind. It comes from our ability and the communal ability to recognize that value. So they invented kind of fiat, fiat currency. Um, it's, it's still a myth that, I mean, um, they were asking abstract questions about where economic, um, and, the price of something, this is the real genius of the Austrians, is they realize that price, uh, price is not a representation of some kind of metaphysics that's inherent in anything. Price is, uh, price contains information, and price is a signal. Price is a signal that it contains the collective information all wrapped up in one number, that can represent for multiple agents at once a degree of complex information that no individual could contain on their own. The information about the relative scarcity of resources, the relative demand of resources, uh, and not just, not just single resources, but the relative, the relative supply and demand of resources in a whole complex network of market forces. That's basically the genius of the, of the Austrians. Now, how, how does that, the, the way that you sort out price, mm -hmm. how does that connect to this idea of private property and the common good? 
connects the idea of private property and the common good based upon the idea that property is fundamentally a relation. That pro what property does is it establishes a relationship between a human person and the goods of the earth. That elevates the goods of the earth. It elevates the value because the goods of the earth are not static. They don't have a value that is a static. Because, it's, because it, it depends on the person with whom it's in relation with exactly. and their perception of it. Exactly. And the value that it has to that person. And well, even though it validates it. And it, it. Exactly. Exactly. And it's a way, it, it, it's related to the Austrian insight because of the understanding of what economic value even is. Now, it's something that exists up here in our minds. But people think, okay, well, what's the, what's the contrast to us, a fiat currency, for example? You think of, well, people think of the gold standard, right? Because gold is valuable. That's real value, right? You take a chunk of gold to Mars, what is its value? It doesn't have any value. Why is gold valuable? Gold is valuable because human beings collectively agree that there's value there. There's nothing intrinsic in the gold that says that has economic value. Its economic value comes from its relationship to take that same, you know, nugget of gold to Mars. It doesn't have the same value. So the whole this is, this is the Franciscan insight in the Middle Ages that all currency is basically at root fiat. Um, so what this is saying then is this comes down to the market economy, mm -hmm. which is because exchange of goods then is based on individual prices. perceptions of value, and so the. What comes from this then is an argument that the market economy is in. Well, I, I would say certainly. I would say absolutely that a market, a market, a market is in harmony with the common good. The the, the market is nothing but a condition, the the, the condition of the, the of the of the relationships that allow human beings to enter enter into that relationship with the material goods of the earth, so that they're they're maximizing the economic value that's actually there and elevating and maximizing the goods of of creation maximizing the value that's in the goods of creation and allowing them to extend their benefits in the marketplace to many at one time and, and this gets back and this is again the austrian insight into what is an economic exchange any kind of any kind of any kind of exchange at all so let's say i have i have ten dollars in my pocket and i go to the store to buy a hat that's worth ten dollars what happens in that exchange? Metaphysically, what's going on? That $10 in my pocket is simply a piece of paper that represents $10 of value that the, mar the, the human community collectively says, is the merchant that's selling me a hat has a $10 price tag on that hat. That merchant has the $10 price tag on that hat precisely because that hat is worth less to him. It's worth less to him than, to, if it was worth more than $10 to him, he wouldn't sell it for $10. I give him $10 to buy that hat because to me, that hat is worth more than the $10 in my pocket. That's why we make the exchange. We make the exchange because my $10 is more valuable to the merchant than that hat. And that hat is more valuable to me than my $10 is valuable to me. So every single time there's a free transaction, you don't have an exchange of value, you have a creation of value. Value is always created where there's a free exchange. Whenever there's a free exchange, there's never a, a, a simple exchange of raw, substantial economic value because there's no such thing as this kind of substance of economic value out there that can be weighed on a scale. It's human perception. It's the relationship between the human person. And every time a free exchange takes place, there's a creation. Does that make sense? And so you're, you're arguing then that this is the exercise, almost sort of the ordained order, that derive from this relation between man and creation mm -hmm. that allows then for private property. And, and if that wasn't so, the, the, the relation of private property didn't exist in the way you described as a good that's in harmony with the common good, all of this would collapse because the, it, it, it relies on the individual relationships of the two things that are exchanged. It, it, allow, it, it, it relies on, as a necessary condition for these kind of free, free exchanges to take place, that the human person has a dominion over the goods of creation so that 
the, the human dominion over the goods of creation uh, is, a, is able to, uh, through that relation, kind of extract and, first of all, re recognize the intrinsic value in creation and then allow that intrinsic value in creation to participate in... My guess is, against this... They'll react against... The, I mean, just the, the notion of property that I'm laying out is not something a lot of people will react against. Um, and at the same time, what you're saying is the exercise of this is in harmony with the common good. Yes. And then the response is, but... Isn't there selfishness? So don't we have two selfish people, self-interested people? And okay, that we, is is that a necessary evil that they're self-interested <laughs> in order to indulge in this exchange? Um, isn't there a conflict there too? This is why I like you, David, because you're 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 asking me the perfect questions. <laughs> so self-interested, self-interested behavior. So okay, what so what's wrong with self-interested behavior? Everybody, so what's wrong with self-interested behavior? Why is self-interested behavior evil? Self-interested behavior is evil, right? No. Of course not. Every, oh, the whole moral life, the whole, if anybody who's, anybody who has, I mean, the entire second part of, the, of this whole summa theology is based upon self-interested behavior. The whole moral life is based upon self-interested behavior. But, the, but many people think it is. Well, so that's think because... That self-interest is selfish. It's self-interest and, and selfishness. Somehow yes, it's somehow the, is the evil of being it's, selfish. It's, it's yes. against love. Yeah. That we're no, 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 no. There's an order. So there's an order. There's an order. There's a fundamental order to human love. There's an order to charity. St. Thomas insists. If you want to talk about the order of charity, you can simply just, I encourage you to read uh, uh, Secunda Secunda, question 26, on the order of charity. And this is, this is markedly contrary to what modern people think, postmodern post people think with that. That well, we're supposed to love everybody equally, right? No, this is con no, no. There's an order to charity. The, the primary love of any of anything that is created is God. We primarily love God. The next thing we love, the next thing that is most lovable for every creature of God, is God, the self. Next, the third on the list, and this is Saint Thomas Aquinas, is other people. Fourth is our body. So you actually, when you love yourself, because love is based upon, for, for St. Thomas, love, you have to understand the causes of love. Love is based upon shareability of goods, which is friendship. Ultimately friendship. Charity is friendship. The shareability of goods. Ultimately we share. The thing which is most lovable is God, because he shares all goodness with us. The next thing which is most lovable in creation is ourself because we have a natural desire to preserve ourselves in being and this is fundamental this is fundamental all to the entire moral life is a thing's desire to preserve itself in being to be happy it's to be happy yeah. happiness we're made mm -hmm. to be happy and to follow that you fundamentally desire self-interest is love of self but it's good, fundamentally good and it's also consistent with love of god it's completely consistent with love of god love of yeah for, for saint thomas love of self Love of self is not, con it's not the Augustinian con uh, contradiction between love of self and love of God. Uh, uh, love of yourself is at its deepest metaphysical level an expression of your love of God and rooted in your love of God. Because God is closer to you than you are to yourself. And you're the, the true, the true, your true nature, the true, the, the true you is actually more in God than it even is in you. Okay, can, can I then... Bring that back down to this. Uh, we've got two people that with in relation with a ten dollar bill and some good, and uh, so it's private. They each own private property in the way you've described, mm -hmm. and they decide then to exchange it because each one is looking at the other what the other has and they value it more. Mm -hmm. So therefore, one says, "I'd rather have the good that you have." I'll give ten dollars for it. So he feels he's gained, and suddenly, by virtue of his relation with the new good, value has gone up. Otherwise, he mm -hmm. wouldn't have done it. And because it's in the perception, it's in yeah. it's in the relation between that person mm -hmm. and the good. Yeah. That's how it's generated. The other side of it is the person who received the ten dollar bill now values that more than the previous person did when he owned it. Mm -hmm. So in his eyes, the value has gone up. And you've created wealth. Um, what's driving that primarily 
is self-interest, but also some interest in the neighbour. Mm-hmm. Each has to be aware in order to make the offer. But but in most people, it's secondary. They they think they're not driven by I'm desperate for this person to have ten dollars. They're driven by well, I'm happy for this guy to have ten dollars and he's a, he's a good mm-hmm. service, but actually I want that. But it but. But what you're saying is that in the hierarchy of love, that's that's proper. In the hierarchy of love, it is natural. There's, it's it's yeah. nothing contrary to nature. It's 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 uh, it's actually it's actually it's in accord with human nature, and because it's in accord with human nature, it's it's in accord with with God's divine order. I'm going to bring this back now to Benedict the Sixteenth. Mm-hmm. So this is you're talking about when for those who don't know, Saint Thomas is Saint Thomas Aquinas. So we knew yeah. that. Um, so he talked about this economic transaction and he mm-hmm. talks about a, 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 an exchange of love in the economic transaction. Mm-hmm. Um, and he says that when you have that, it, he uses the phrase superabundant. So he's saying effectively that, it's, that because of the existence of love in the economic transaction, God is made present or God is present mm-hmm. there somehow. And the principle of love is superabundant. So mm-hmm. that's the, this is the principle of the creation of wealth. Um, it, but in that, and, yeah. and it's because yeah. of the participation. Now, when the, this is in Caritas and Veritate, he mm-hmm. describes this. Now, when, I know a lot of people who read that and said, well, what he's saying is you can't charge. You have to give something away. It's gratuitousness is his principle. He that Wait, and he talks about the gift economy yeah, in yeah. that sense. Yeah. Uh, but, but what? But I never saw it that way. I saw him as describing, actually, the mechanics of the ordinary economic transaction that we know about, and saying there is, in the proper order of love, so that it's present there when I buy a pint of milk or something like that. And and he's what he's articulating is the reason why, theolog- another way theologically, you just did the same sort of thing. Why wealth is created. In that well, yeah, and value is always, value is always created when human beings cooperate. Because when, when human beings cooperate in an exchange, because they have a, a, a relationship to the goods of creation, which is based fundamentally on reason and not just upon consumption, animal consumption, when human beings cooperate, that cooperation itself is able to generate more value. And that's what, and I'm relating this in my work to what is the metaphysical meaning of the universal destination of goods that the goods of creation can be amplified in their very goodness, that they can amp- the, the effects of their goodness can be amplified. So, so the goods of creation are not simply static realities that are supposed to be divided up and consumed. They're realities whose very goodness can be augmented and amplified by participation in the human relation. And, and it, it, it also is it, it related to and we're start, we're talking. There's a lot of big concepts we're trying to pull together here. It's related to the kind of the Austrian insight into what value even is, what what value is. As what, when I have that dollar in my pocket and I say this is a dollar, this is a value of one dollar. What does that even mean? What it means is that it's a it's a relational concept. It's a concept that I am in a relationship with other people around me who also recognize this as having value of one dollar but it depends on those human relationships without that relationship based upon reason that the human person human persons can have with each other and with the goods of the earth that dollar doesn't exist right does anyone have any thoughts Mm -hmm. yeah i just have one question um so just to go back to your example about the person buying a hat for ten dollars yeah so you said that uh for the person who's selling the hat ten dollars is worth more than the hat yeah. The person who's buying the hat has worth more than $10. So there's a fair exchange mm-hmm. where each is acting out of self-interest, but where, yeah. in a sense, but where each is also benefiting from, from the transaction. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if that's what determines the value of a thing, how, how are, I'm trying to think of how to articulate this, how are we supposed to guard against uh, unfair transactions? So let's, let's take a different example. Let's mm-hmm. say that you have a life-saving medication that my son needs mm-hmm. and I have you know five thousand dollars in my bank account and I say well I'll give you anything if you give me like I would pay like in my in my mind I'm thinking yeah. I would pay anything for that medication 
And you somehow know that I have $5,000. And so you say, give me $5,000 and I'll give you the medication. Well, obviously, like, the medication is worth everything to me because I want to save my son's life. Mm -hmm. um, and the $5,000 is worth way more to you than the medication is. But, like, if that's all that's determining value, then how, how do you kind of look at that from outside and see that? I mean, because, like, clearly we all know that that's wrong, right? Like, if you're, right? I mean, like, if you're, if you're bilking me out of money that, you know, you don't actually need for the, for the, for the service that you're providing. Yeah. So, I mean, so value is all arbitrary and all based on what each side is willing to pay or what each side, how each side conceives of the value of the thing that's being exchanged. Uh, how, how do you, how do you... I don't know. Like, how, how do you how do you make make that fair or something? Or judge that from the outside. Well, there's there's again the answer. There's no there's no one answer to that. Mm -hmm. There's no one answer to that because, the, uh, and again to understand what I'm trying. There's there's no one there's no one answer to that as to how value a particular how valuable a particular uh, dose of a medication is. Yeah. Uh, in in this in this in this case, I mean in these ex these examples. There are so many other factors and complications involved there that what it actually does is it fails to be one of the kind of the thought experiment of my example. The example of me buying a hat is, is specifically the reason why I'm using that example is to trim down specifically to take an example and to trim it down of all of the uh, excess human complications that are in there to get down to, on a metaphysical level, what's fundamentally happening in any human transaction. Mm. You know, see what I mean? Yeah. And in any human transaction, uh, what is the nature of economic value? Economic value. Now, and, and so uh, that's a specific thing. That's kind of a specific, so what's, and trimming down and isolating these, uh, isolating these principles. I use the example of a hat in $10 to make it very simple. So we can see in any transaction, there isn't in any transaction, a free transaction, there isn't simply an exchange of static value, but there's a, there's a, there's a plasticity to the value that's there that's either being created or destroyed. Yeah. It's either being created. So now what that example does is it brings in a host of other human complications that play upon and actually determine how we value things, right? That also have to be weighed morally like the value of a child's life, for example, you know? And so uh, that, that's a very legitimate, that's a legitimate uh, question that society can ask itself is are, for the, for the sake of uh, children, particularly the underprivileged, getting maybe the benefits that they need when it comes to something, when it comes to something like uh, life-saving medication, uh, are, is, does, does the collective society, the, does the, the, the common good of society, uh, step in and, and, uh, and provide? Those are legitimate questions. But but that, but that almost sounds like, oh, I'm sorry, go ahead. Well, I was going to say, it isn't obvious to me that your example is unjust. We don't know what it took for that person to make the drug. We don't know how much, we don't know what, what was needed mm -hmm. in order to produce the drug. Yeah. It might have been by great personal mm -hmm. sacrifice. We simply don't know. Yeah. yeah. Well, um, I mean, but, but like, yeah. I'm, I'm sort of thinking of a case. I mean, maybe a better example yeah. would be if uh, I was, I had just been walking through the, I like, I'm, I'm journeying through the desert with somebody else, and he has four bottles of water, and I have zero bottles of water, and like, uh, you know, I, but I have a bunch of money on me, and he agrees to sell me like a bottle of water for, you know, several hundred or several, several thousand dollars or something like that. I mean that. Well, in the end, you just don't know. You, well, can't, I mean, you can't put it. You don't know what the fair price is based upon the, the water. Yeah. But what, what what I'd say is that the best chance you have of motivating those people to reach a mutual agreement mm -hmm. is have other people selling water. Yeah. Other people oh, yeah. selling drugs. See, so this is the, it's competition. See, this is right, the idea. Right, in yeah. that in that case, this is why in my example. So what your what your example is is, is actually uh, uh, not even an example because what it, what it, what you're doing, uh, what, what the reason why I use that example is to just metaphysically talk, talk about what's happening on a metaphysical at any at any given human transaction. Yeah. Uh, now that also necessitates that we're in a community and a network of other people. Who are also engaging in the same these same transactions. Right. This is why, in your example, if there's only one person that has this medication, and one person, then properly speaking, it's not really a, a, a trade. Yeah. 
mm-hmm. at that point. You're not what you're talking about there is not a, a free human trade. It's it's, it's more almost. yeah. It's more it's not it's not properly speaking a free human trade. So there's go in that's in that sense we're not even talking about economic like finding right. a, a so fair price. Break, it breaks the example. It, it breaks the example, okay. but because it brings in all of these other complications like a brand new life saving medication. But see now the truth is the truth is. Brand new life-saving medications are very hard to place an economic value on, because this is, uh, uh, to to use an example of medication, it costs millions and millions of dollars of research and development to to develop life-saving medications, and until until these medications are put out into the market, it's it's very it's it's hard to put a dollar amount on these things. Charlie, you mean, yeah, yeah, I'm thinking of. Uh, the idea that I think was kind of hammered home to me studying economics uh, that the 20th century is sort of a story of the Austrians winning a certain debate over kind of the the, uh, social, the socialist calculation debate, mm-hmm. whether or not socialism can mimic some sort of price system or whether experts can set prices in a way that will uh, allocate resources as efficiently as a market. And it seems like the Austrians pretty squarely won that debate. They weren't given that much credit for it, but mm-hmm. all their assumptions and ideas have pretty much been yeah. incorporated into like the main textbook, textbook mm-hmm. ideas. Uh, but where the uh, I think in, in kind of political economy where the, where there still is a lot of uh, divergence from the Austrian sort of hardline free market idea is in all of the surrounding institutions. Uh, how we might redistribute what we get from this bigger pie as a result of taking advantage of the price system. So there are all these other possibilities for redistributing without necessarily interfering directly with prices. So you can have, uh, you know, like a minimally uh, adverse welfare system, adversely like a, a negative income tax, something that doesn't dampen incentives for people who would work, doesn't really directly interfere with prices, but is still kind of getting into redistribution territory. Well, not, I wouldn't even say redistribution at a certain point, but there's nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong in, in, in Catholic social teachings. There's nothing wrong with, let's say, government or states playing a role in, uh, uh, playing a role in, uh, in providing resources for people. But this can be done in a way which is this can be done in a way which is uh, consistent with the with the laws of nature, or contrary. To, uh, there's nothing wrong with the government uh, s- stepping in and, pr- and providing for people who are, let's say, rad- they have uh, their circumstances in life radically or something like that. But there's there's uh, there. I would say there's definitely something that would be wrong if something like the state comes in and, and fundamentally becomes uh, an economic agent that that kind of destroys the natural incentive process or, 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 or a structure of incentives that's built into it. I would say that would be a problem. If governments start to set price arbitrarily, right. that would be, then you're destroying the incentive process. Uh, if governments start to uh, um, set certain, uh, yeah, like set, set price controls or set supply controls, uh, then, then I, w- I would say that that is... Uh, what you're doing is not consistent with nature, but at that point it's contra natura, because the, the natural the natural incentive process that's built into a market is being is being violated. Right. So you could have you know many different models that still use markets as the foundation. Well, channel resources in different, but the, I mean most of a lot of Europe is this way. Right. I mean in Europe, uh, I mean most most uh, I mean there's there's one Swedish economist I actually listen to a lot, but he, they, he actually can't stand when everybody, particularly Americans, kept call, calling them socialists. He says that we have, we have, especially in Germany, is a market economy. Denmark, they're still, they have, they have a social welfare system. They have, they have networks of, they have networks of the government providing for things, but they're still based upon markets. They still have markets. Um, they they have, still have economies and businesses that, that are fundamentally operating for profit and act upon incentives Absolutely. into markets. Yeah. A few decades. Like Especially since the 90s. Right. Like Sweden has. I know they've moved and they've experienced growth because of it. So there's still a market economy. But, and even Hayek and uh, uh, Friedrich Hayek in the 
what's his, the famous work by Hayek? The road to serfdom. The road to serfdom. Even him in, in, in the road to serfdom, he says that in, in the West, as wealthy as the West is right now, this he wrote this in the forties. He says that there that uh, there's there's nothing wrong with having a social safety net for people who are on the absolute bottom one percent or two percent. But he says that that doesn't that doesn't necessarily violate market principles because the government there doesn't become an economic agent in the sense of determining price, uh, determining supply and demand. Uh, but is simply is simply there to provide um, assistance for those who, because the world is sloppy, the real world is a sloppy place. It doesn't fit. There's nothing wrong with uh, that. So even even Hayek recognizes that. So that's just to, again. I'm thinking of uh, misunderstandings. I when you, when you talk about the problem of government setting prices, mm-hmm. uh, what you're saying is that it's not that. It's immoral, so to speak, but it's more that because it can't possibly know yeah. what the individual perceptions are, that that it, it cannot be acting in accord with the with the common mm-hmm. good. Well, like how much is a gallon of milk worth? I mean, that's like a, that's the, the yeah. point. Or yeah. a nail or something. And that those fundamental questions, asking those questions and realizing realizing that there is no one answer at any given time. It, that's the Austrian insight, and you know, is that the, the actual value of this is determined by by thousands of interactions between people across a net, a whole network. And the evidence to support that would be that for all the good intentions, when they do set prices, it causes huge problems. Mm-hmm. It, it always, yeah, and so that's why, yeah. I mean, like I say, whether it's are there are there issues? Subsidies. Yeah. Are there issues? Are there issues with liberalism? Yes, yeah. but. It's a it, the, the cures the cures put the disease to shame. <laughs> like, David, I would say it is immoral to set prices because then you are a, 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 a mastermind expert is taking the ability for another from an, away from another individual life force to set a price for his goods and <laughs> what he has done and all the everything he's put into it, not just his labor, but it fundamentally is labor, but also all that, all everything else that has added value to whatever he's created. So if some, if some other person takes that away, and it's by force when it's a government regulation, then I, I would say that is immoral. I wonder, would, would we say that, if, if supposing we imagine hypothetically that the government could set a price better than the individual? Hypothetically, there is no example would they, of that. I, I know, hypothetically, that's why I say hypothetically. But would they be entitled to do so? I guess it's sort of like even if they're even if they're exactly right, isn't it my right to like say, well, this is what I'm mm-hmm. trying to sell it for, and then fail? <laughs> like, if you have some kind of a natural monopoly, and I think that this also gets back a little bit to maybe a better it, hypothetical. It, it, I, I, I'm, I'm just asking. I'm not just yeah. asserting. But is, does that make it immoral? Well, I believe so because you're using force to make somebody do something they don't want to do. I mean, the government's force, the force of law, and Thomas was say the law always has the force of coercion, and then the one who has the is has is stands in for the common good, and the one who has care of the common good has that power of coercion. It's a it's a it's a huge power. This is why it's incorrect. I mean, you're, we're flying really close to the sun when we give that the person who has care of the common good to actually set economic prices. Would it, would it be so far as immoral? I, I, I don't, because I don't know, because the, I mean, in the history, in the history of Christendom, there have been many times where uh, uh, Christian rulers have set prices or, or e- become economic agents. The history of Christendom, and there's, there's been a collective wisdom throughout the West where we're saying, well, they, they do that, they, they can do it, but it almost always fails. So the collective wisdom kind of developed in the West into like basically what we now call classical liberalism. That's been the, that's been the collective wisdom of Christendom. Um, it's not, I, w- I wouldn't go so far as to say it's immoral for that person who has care of the common good. Um, well, so I guess I, 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 now I, yeah. I don't accept your theory, like, you know, just say, let's say it could happen theoretically. I don't, I don't see that happening. And, and I would say that uh, though there have been people and, mm-hmm. and governments that have stepped in in the name of the common good, 
<laughs> and have attempted to set a price, their individual or even collective wisdom, because it's a small group of people, is not as accurate as the as the collective. Yeah, uh, that's almost knowledge. almost almost always. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I I I'm, I would listen if there's a case. I I'd like agree that. with that. I would agree with that. But, it's a theory that matches. But that's pragmatic rather than moral. On-demand spot theory? On-demand spot theory. It says um, that the government can never possibly know, or a centralized organization can possibly never know all the complexities yeah. that go into a market system, yeah. and therefore the best decisions are made by the person who's immediately there mm -hmm. in that situation. And therefore, hypothetically, the government could know the best price, but in reality, they demand. never can, because mm -hmm. they can never possess all the wisdom that the collective possesses. Mm -hmm. And that's that's the that's the Austrian, mm -hmm. that's the the fundamental Austrian lesson. Yeah. But, but is the argument then that it shouldn't because it can't do it as well? Because I would certainly or agree with that. Or is it immoral anyway? Or is it fundamentally immoral? Yeah. I don't think well, that it's fundamentally immoral. I accept that it can't do it. It can't do it as well. I so. think that if it could do it better, it would possibly be moral. But because they can't do it better. So maybe the question is more along these lines, and it's I think it's kind of similar to to your idea is that let's say somebody owned a little piece of land that was in the way mm. of a dam that was going to bring light to millions of people or you know and water mm -hmm. and that person thought that the value of the land was 73 trillion dollars because he thought he could get it so, so that's the natural monopoly example and that's just one of those edge cases where the market phenomenon doesn't function in the same way. The price system, there's no potential for competition. Mm -hmm. And so you, you might need to have government step in and set those prices like we do with PG&E because gas is kind of a natural monopoly. You can't have competing firms supplying gas pipelines into people's homes. Mm -hmm. That's an argument for another day. Maybe, yeah. But I understand <laughs> what you're saying. Yes, that, that would be the case. That would be a case where you could say, well, the market was. Well, usually when people give the type of counter, the counter counter examples to, to they're, 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 they're isolating examples which actually are not what I would call a truly market example, as if there's a monopoly. When there are monopolies that do occur, then you do have the conditions that are not a market. And that is it. this is why sometimes the government does step in in disasters, and I don't think this is immoral. For example, um, I remember when 9-11 happened, I was actually in New York at the time, the government did step in very quickly and made a fiat decision because all of those, the, the gas stations that were around Manhattan Island, all of a sudden were like charging exorbitant prices for gas. Because people, but the government stepped in in that case. There was, a, there was an immediate, because it was time sensitive at that sense. Like, they were real. They realized that gas was really valuable for people. So, for in certain time, in certain places, the government stepped in and said, "You keep. You have to." This is not just. I would argue with that too. Well, I, 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 might, I see, I see your argument. Because it doesn't. One guy fills up. This guy can't get it. I but see your argument. If you raise the price, then everybody takes two gallons because that's all. Well, I see. This is why they did. Yeah. They were allowed to raise price. They were allowed to raise price, but they just could not charge a thousand dollars a gallon. So this is why well, some of those Wall Street crooks could have paid it. <laughs> but I, I see your I know your argument. I know your argument. But the thing what I'm saying is that in certain situations, in certain circumstances, mm -hmm. the market conditions break down. And this is very easy for uh, people who are in, in favor of a type of socialism or, or a centralized planned, centrally planned economy almost always point to these cases yeah. and say, look at your markets failing. And I'm saying, well, no, it's not. A, that's a counterexample that's actually not an example. Does that make sense? And so the, res the response is not to say, okay, let's bring in universal price control. Yeah. Because it's broken down. It's actually to say, let's try and have a, a mod yeah. install the market. Sure. This, is, yeah. this is always why the, 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 yeah. the motto, the motto of, the, of the, the kind of religion of the state, when you think that the state's going to control everything, is never let... Never let a crisis go unused, because when there's a crisis like 9/11, and then then something something happens like then all of a sudden uh, ga gas vendors are charging exorbitant prices. They'll say, "Look, at the system is breaking down. We need to step in and control these prices." Well, no. What you need, you, you have to realize that the the temporarily, temporarily, 
there's a, there's a market breakdown, sort of, or conditions that don't allow, the, the conditions that are, are at this point, I don't want to say, this is still, you still have market principles at work, even in that case, but you have, you have principles that are not, are not allowing the common good to be served by those principles. Because the truth also is, there's a, um, that's why uh, Jordan Peterson writes this out of his book, there's the, the Pareto principle. Or heard about the Pareto principle, is that 80 percent of all resources always end up going to twenty percent of people in anything. I thought, and I thought it was. It's usually called. It's usually called eighty twenty. Eighty twenty is the principle, and this is almost with everything. And so one of the one of the the uh, the, the the kind of Marxist critique of capitalism is that it, it always ends toward it always ends up in inequality. But that's not a problem of capitalism. That's a problem of all reality. Reality itself tends towards inequality. It's just a principle of all reality. Um, a, a, a fraction, oh fraction, only like 20% of all classical composers will, ever, will, will, get all, will get 80% of the airplay. Why? Is it because it's unequal? No. Well, some people call it the, the, the Matthew principle, because it says in Matthew, for, for those who have more, more will be given. For those who have more will be given. Yeah. And so, yeah, and the, so the key is, the key is not, not, is recognizing that there's a fundamental inequality built into all nature. And this inequality can, if it gets out of hand, if the inequality gets too extreme, it can be very destabilizing socially. It can be. So... It's possible, it's possible to have something like uh, a state come in and create something like safety nets for those people who just, for no, no fault of their own, end up being uh, completely, completely without, uh, without resources. That's possible. But uh, we, we, we're, we've gone way off topic here. But in, the, in, this, in this case, in this case, the circumstance of, let's say, 9-11, the catastrophe, temporarily skews the market forces so that only those with absolute, uh, the highest amount of resources can have at that point what is necessary to be spread out for the common good in that temporary situation. So the government did step in. And I would say in that case, it's not, it's not entirely uh, a bad yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah. I, I, I can't my my uh, example that I would use is when there's a hurricane mm -hmm. and the price of plywood or the price yeah. of hotel room you regulate the price then a family of four may take two hotel rooms can't yeah. you can't get it but if you double mm -hmm. the price or you raise the price same thing with plywood you really need to put plywood on one side of your house and it's going to cost twice or three times as much for the plywood that's you know, the, the resources go to where they're absolutely needed. If somebody has to get from Manhattan to New Jersey because they give birth, mm -hmm. then that person's going to be willing to pay $5,000 for enough gas to get there. And the person that actually doesn't have to go anywhere just doesn't get any gas because it's too expensive. So I, I think the market would work. It's why there still are market principles there. Yeah, yeah. I, I think There's the market are. is the, I, well, let me put it this way. It's not an ideal situation. It's a terrible situation. But, mm -hmm. but a government agency coming in and determining some price, who's going to determine the price? It should be $7 a gallon or $10 a gallon or $15. Who is that person in the audience, maybe, or whoever it was mm -hmm. today? But I, I, would, I would just submit that the market would be better at figuring out that price than, than the mayor. Well, I agree with you. I, I agree with you. But to get back to our original question, it's, I don't think it's fundamentally, I don't think okay. it's anymore. Well, I mean, I think they're acting in good faith. Oh, certainly they're, I mean, they're always acting. But I think they're harming the common good. They, they might be. They probably are. It almost always probably, this is why I don't like any, any time when the government acts as an economic agent in the sense that economic agent of actually determining price. And I don't like that. There's nothing wrong with voluntary redistribution. In other words, yep. rich people say, I'd like to give to the poor. That's the fact that's to be encouraged. That's, yeah, that's, the, that's personal. Isn't that the best? That's the best way. I mean, that would. Be yeah. Well, this, uh, this, I'm going to. Because I know a little bit about Venezuela, because my ex-wife is Venezuelan. I went went there, and the history of that is interesting. You brought that up. That my personal analysis of this is that you had a country that was 
pretty almost, you would say, fully developed economy. Mm -hmm. I mean, that you had a thriving middle class. Uh, it was almost the first world. Yeah, first yeah, first world. It, it, uh, and de democratic, um, f full infrastructures. Um, but you did have, and I, and I would say it was one of the effects in Venezuela of this shift of faith that you, you were asking ah, about, mm -hmm. a great haughtiness in the, the rich in Venezuela. Mm -hmm. um, now that happens everywhere, mm -hmm. but there was, the, the, there was a special sort of type of that that was going on that caused great envy, um, and uh, there wasn't that natural sense that those who had recognised their privilege and cared for the poor. Mm -hmm. Now there's always going to be there, but it was, there was a huge imbalance, there was an imbalance in that. Mm -hmm. That allowed um, Hugo Chavez to, as a populist, who shared that resentment, because he came from the slums of Caracas or something, um, to actually get in by promising washing machines to everybody in the slums. So, forcible redistribution. Mm -hmm. uh, he then came in and started to do this and then and, and just instituted all of these bad policies, sort of brain dead efforts, accelerated. And this is why, although inequality is inequality is, is built into nature everywhere, hierarchy, the, the tendency of valuable resources collect into the hands of a few, which happens everywhere, can be socially destabilizing. Mm -hmm. It can be. So uh, now I think, I think the best way, the best, the best way, the very best way to remedy that is when the conditions are, the, the, when the, the proper role of government, the proper role of government is to establish the conditions for a free market to take place. So there's a stable rule of law, private property titles, people have a clear titles to private property, contract, uh, law, con contract enforcement, uh, stable consistent, just laws, that is the best way to read. So even let's say after 9-11, gas prices soar up, so you have one wealthy guy in town that buys all the gas, but then he's gonna turn around and sell it a little bit cheaper. So there's gonna be a natural, the, the natural way to redistribute, or it, the natural way to serve the common good is almost always the market, is the market. Because the market is fundamentally just, just, just human beings cooperating naturally. So would it be fair to say then that in uh, economic matters, the role of the government, if there is one, is to make itself unnecessary? Is that kind of... Well, it's kind of like, what I would say is not like to make that. itself unnecessary, That's because it is necessary, but not as an economic agent, mm. not as one of the players right. in determining price. But Justice it, is necessary. Yeah. So yeah. the government has to be there to establish those conditions. Well, I'm, I'm also just thinking of like occasions where the market system breaks down for one reason or another because of a natural disaster or because mm -hmm. of some other event, I mean, and, or, or, or let's say in a simpler case with like a monopoly, I mean, yeah. my understanding is don't think that monopoly busting is inherently wrong, they just think that like the government should step in, break up the monopoly, and then just leave, like, yeah. uh, right? I mean, is that, is that? Uh, well, I was just going to say, from my perspective, I think what conservative ec economists would say is that there can't be a real money, somebody for less. It's only when you have a crony capitalist situation that yeah. somebody can develop a monopoly because they're protected. Regulations that essentially are, are ones that only they hoops that only they can pay for. Only they can pay for, yeah. that's right. right. Well, and this is also why there's a, there's a in, in the, rarely in a, in a market do real monopolies actually take place. There's a group, almost always when you have this like massive structures, massive businesses, the growth of major monopolistic business and the growth of big government almost goes hand in hand. Because government regulation always serves big business. Because only the bigger businesses have the means by which to navigate. Regulation almost always cuts, cuts off the bottom 10% of the businesses that simply can't, can't compete. And so this is why, if you, and even if you look at uh, you know, gas regulations, uh, tech, Technology regulations, it's almost always the big companies that are pushing for government regulation, simply because of this, 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 this. Well, the media is the perfect recent example. The, yeah. the media wants the fairness doctrine so that they can determine the percentage of who can say what. And it would, all the, all the people that are out there doing their own thing. Uh, and the irony is it was actually favor Facebook 
Of course. Google. They think they're controlling them. Well, that's the argument that's made, but actually they're big enough to work out how to comply with it. Mm -hmm. And it stops. And so it actually promotes what the, what the argument says they're trying to destroy. Yeah. Well, they have good marketing teams. Yeah, they do. <laughs> <laughs> well, I want to say thank you very much. You've been listening to the Way of Beauty podcast, conversations on Catholic faith and culture. For more information, go to thewayofbeauty.org, and if you want to buy the book, go to amazon.com. Thank <laughs> you.